Hi, and welcome to The Student Sums It Up. My name is Sam, and every week I sit down with our writers to bring you updates on Amherst's latest news. Today, April 20th, we'll learn about the sense of community that Muslim students have fostered during Ramadan this year, the curation of a new indigenous art exhibition at the Mead, and the newly elected executive board of the Association of Amherst Students. Stay tuned. First up, I'm sitting down with assistant sports editor Leo Kamen to talk about his article on the experience of folks on campus celebrating Ramadan this year. Hi, Leo. Hi, happy to be here. Um, So first up, could you just tell me who you talk to and what the general story is of people's Ramadan experience this year? Yeah, so I talked to um, I talked to sort of an interesting mix of people um, who celebrate Ramadan, uh, Muslim students on campus. So what I thought was cool is I talked to two people who are sort of lifelong Muslims. Um, they celebrate Ramadan their whole lives, but they start doing the the main uh, like religious rituals, which is fasting, um, when they're like thirteen, um, like basically when they hit puberty. So I talked to a couple people who had been doing it since that time. So they're like six or seven years, eight years into celebrating the holiday. But then I also talked to somebody, Kobe, um, a sophomore, who actually at the beginning of this month of Ramadan converted to Islam. Um, That's really cool. And he actually, wow. he fasted last year, but still it was an interesting mix of perspectives of people doing it essentially for the first time and people who were really used to it. Yeah, that's really cool. And obviously like a great way to tell a story is like here, like all different perspectives on it. So In terms of their experience so far this month, have they felt supported by the college and like religious and spiritual life in their observance of this holiday? They all said that on an individual level, everybody on campus is super supportive and accepting. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is sometimes it's just this, this, there may need to be more structures in place um, to sort of allow um, teachers, for example. Yeah, know, that was something I was going to ask about. Yeah. Like how, like say someone's like feeling, you know, bad and like can't come to class or they need something to like spend time on like religious observance, like other activities instead of coming to class. Like how is that communication going? It sounds like it's not like really there. At least a lot of people feel like it's not there. Yeah. So this is the sort of the thing is, so you're not allowed to eat or drink water all day. Mm-hmm. So obviously like this is a very exhausting thing. And on top it's of that- physically taxing. It, yeah. They wake up very early as well so they can get in a meal before sunrise. Mm-hmm. Um, and also they're, 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 you just have to spend more time in your religious practice. So it sort of swallows up some of the work. Um, and people definitely express that it's just more difficult to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Um even though they know their professors in almost all circumstances would be super sympathetic to it, it's still, you don't really want to always be in that situation of like having to advocate yeah, for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they've talked about how maybe it would be better going forward if maybe professors knew ahead of time that they had students who were going through this. So the conversation didn't necessarily have to happen or people didn't have to advocate for themselves. In that situation, like with the way it is now, it also totally depends on the faculty. Like there, like hypothetically, there could be no consistency between how faculty members like respond to this sort of thing. You know what I mean? There needs to be some sort of, like you're saying, like oversight of like 
how these like interactions should go and like preparation in advance. Yeah, yeah. No, I talked to to one member of the Muslim community, Muhammad, and this is kind of his idea of, you know, professors would maybe get like an email or something ahead yeah. of Ramadan just saying, hey, like these students in your class are dealing with this. Um, and then that would make that conversation easier in the first yeah. place or maybe it wouldn't even have to happen at all. Yeah, exactly. Is there anything else you wanted to share about the conversations that you had with people uh, that I haven't asked about specifically yet? I would say two things. One is just that it's, I think it's just really cool how close the community is. Mm -hmm. And frankly, like when I asked them, like, what is it like when I tried to get a sense of just like, what is it like to be a part of the Muslim community during Ramadan? Like they were all just really excited about like how much time they were able to spend with each other. And like, it just seemed like a really good time. Um, so it's sort of cool that like really tight communities like this. Yeah, that's so awesome. A lot of the ways you would normally observe the religion of Islam is like very public. Like you, you go and worship with your community. Mm -hmm. You know a lot about the religion and you talk about it in public. Um, those are sort of like exterior forms of like showing that you're a pious person. Um, but as, as one of the people I talked to said, fasting is like a very personal thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you really didn't want to fast, you could just hide snacks in your room and none of your community members would know. So it's very personal in that way. But then they also say that this is sort of the time of year where they're closest together as a community. So they also eat all their meals together um, for, nice. um, to a large extent during the month. And the other thing I would say um, they've expressed some difficulties with dining services mm. um, just in that because there's so few options at Val, um, and this is a problem year round, if you eat halal, you can't have like things like pork or alcohol. And there are lots of times where both main dishes at Val yeah. will have, one will have pork, one will have alcohol. Um, it just becomes especially a problem during Ramadan. Like I talked to one to one person, Muhammad, he plays basketball, he has his lifts, like he, he needs a lot of food at the end yeah. of the day. And, and all they have for them prepared is snacks. So if he can't have one of the two main meals, he's kind of in a tough spot. And like they have discussed this with dining services and by all accounts, like the conversation went really well and they were really receptive to it. Um, but I think interestingly, like this problem with the halal food is just, I think a problem that a lot of people with either dietary restrictions or religious restrictions or yeah, vegetarian sure. or vegan um, experience. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's yeah interesting entry point to just how can we make it easier for people to eat the way they want to eat on campus. Is there anything that you want to share about the journalistic process and writing this article that you found particularly like challenging or like exciting? Um, I would say just in terms of exciting, it's just cool. Um, you think because you're at a small school, you have a lot of sense of what goes on. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like I talked to them about going to um, a mosque in Hadley. I didn't know there was a mosque in Hadley. I talked to them about all these things that they do, this tight community that exists at Amherst that, um, you know, I think I didn't have much of a sense of before doing the article. Um, so I think that's what's cool about the journalistic process. It's, it kind of like shows you how much you don't know about. For sure. And that's why everyone should read The Student. Absolutely. Also. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Leo. Yeah, thank you so much. So next up, I'm sitting down with staff news writer Ethan Foster to talk about his article on the Mead Art Museum's Indigenous Art Collection and how that is growing and changing. Hi, Ethan. Hi, Sam. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. So yeah, could you just give me some context, some background for, for this story? 
Yeah, definitely. So the Mead uh, Art Museum right now is working on a new exhibition um, in collaboration with Frost Library, which will be debuting in fall of 2023. Um, the name of the exhibition is going to be Boundless. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an exhibition that's going to showcase American art um, and American art through the lens of um, indigenous and native uh, art and collections. Awesome. Um, so how does the how does this collaboration with Frost work? Are they using like some of the archives uh, for that? Or like what's the yeah, just what's up with the collaboration? Yes, they will be using the archives. Uh, so they'll be using the Kim Waite uh, and Eisenberg collection of Native American literature. And they're going to be combining that with the Meads existing indigenous um, art collection. And so it's going to be sort of like an interactive um, exhibition that way. Yeah, like kind of like a multimedia like exhibition with like literature side by side with art. That's what I'm like understanding. Yeah, exactly. That's really cool. Are any students involved with this project um, or is it all like museum staff? Yeah, so uh, there are students involved. So there's an advisory committee, which is um, sort of meaning to oversee the process and sort of make sure that Indigenous and Native people's perspective is at the forefront of it. Um, so there are two students on the advisory committee, which also has um, professors and other faculty members. And then uh, there are also also several student workers who have been helping to sort of curate the exhibit and gather mm -hmm. materials. Uh, so students are definitely being involved in the process. Yeah, so I've been able to talk so far to Lisa Crossman, who is the curator for the Meads um, American Art Collection. Awesome. Um, she's sort of overseeing the project, though it is being curated by a guest curator whose name is Heidi Erdrich. And uh, I've also been able to talk to a couple students. Um, one student I talked to was Jacqueline Cabarrubia, um, class of 2025, who is a member of the advisory committee. The guest curator developing this exhibition is Hyde Erdrich of the Turtle Mountain Band of Ojibwe. She is a poet and writer who has also curated numerous exhibitions of indigenous art in the Twin Cities area. Um, I would say one other thing is uh, that Lisa Crossman, the um, American art curator, mentioned is that this is sort of a segue for the Mead into sort of breaking from the, I guess, the colonialist perspective in American art and sort of, um, you know, changing their perspective that the way that they operate. Um, it is a big deal for them to be collaborating with Frost. That's, mm -hmm. This is the first project that they've done uh, oh, in wow. collaboration with Frost. So, yeah, they're definitely trying to shift away from some of their old practices and um, also, you know, explore the way that the Mead operates, the way that it does exhibitions, and uh, also recognizing the land that um, the Mead sits on, that Amherst sits on um, as being indigenous land. Okay, I'm going to ask what I always ask at the very end. Was there anything that you found challenging or exciting about the journalistic process while working on this piece? Yeah, so one thing I would say was um, trying to synthesize sources and uh, sort of come with um, a would come up with information when something is still in the works. Mm -hmm. um, this project is definitely still evolving. Yeah, so it's so hard to write change. about something that's like, you know, like going on in the present moment, exactly. you know what I mean? Because you don't yeah. have that like hindsight where you can look back and see all the parts and how they fit together and be like, this is the story, like really clearly. Yeah, for sure. And like the name just recently, the name of the exhibition just recently changed too. So it's still a lot of, yeah, definitely a lot of moving pieces right now, but it's uh, been very cool to see how um, clear the vision for the project is, I guess. And just, um, yeah, see, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah. Totally. Well, thank you, Ethan. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs>
So finally, I'm sitting down with senior managing editor Leah Marchaki to talk about the interviews that he did with the newly elected AAS e-board members. Hi, Liam. Hi, it's great to be here. So what day were the e-board members sworn in? They were sworn in at the most recent AS meeting on April 11th. Awesome. Um, and who are they? Just introduce us. Yes. So our new president is Cyrus Wheaton from the class of 23. Uh, the vice president is Jaden Richards, who's uh, currently a first year. The secretary is uh, Jeffrey Ma, who's class of 24. The treasurer is Danya Hollick, who is also class of 24. And the judiciary council chair is Alex Jabor, who's class of 23. Okay, awesome. Um, so let's hear from the president first. What did you speak to Cyrus about and what did he have to say? Right. So Cyrus told me that he was very excited to um, be the new president. He was like ecstatic when he heard about it. Um, and he also told me that he, he really wants to um, create a diversity council. Um, so it, there isn't a diversity council yet? I think there is not. Um, but... Uh, Cyrus hopes to make one in his um, tenure as president. That almost reminds me of uh, what we talked about last week or what I talked about with some of the news writers last week, which was the um, AAS bylaw saying that the senators are going to be paid um, and the judiciary members are going to be paid starting the next election cycle. Um, and the main reason they did that move was to increase like diversity by increasing the accessibility of being on AAS. So it seems like a logical next step would be a diversity council. I and can't believe they don't have that yet. It's funny you bring that up because Cyrus and I also briefly spoke about that initiative to pay the AS senders. And Cyrus mm -hmm. said he also hopes to be able to look into look, expanding that program and seeing how, how AS might go about supplying money for salaries for other important organizations. Awesome. So cool. So before being elected as president, Cyrus was a senator. How long had he, be, had he been a senator for? I, I think he'd been a senator um, for much of his time at Amherst, so he's, mm. he's definitely a very experienced um, candidate. Um, now, moving on, you said that you also got a chance to speak with Jeff Ma, who is the secretary. Yeah. What is his background on AAS, first of all? I believe he was a senator prior to becoming secretary. Okay, awesome. And what did you talk with him about? He told me that he, he heard about his his win in, in the secretary election well he was at an orchestra concert and he was, he was <laughs> seemed pretty excited about that but he had to keep it under wraps until he could really celebrate it um he actually told me that uh he doesn't have any any very strong policy positions interestingly enough but he's he's ready to sort of hit the ground running i mean the secretary is yeah what does the secretary, the secretary do is a very important role on as executive board because they're responsible for like a lot of the administrative tasks, like mm -hmm. kind of they, they call the votes, they um, keep track of attendance. Mm -hmm. They also are responsible for managing different aspects of like what the AAS does, like they, they maintain the vans and they hire the van clerk. So it's, it's a very important administrative role. And then finally, you were able to speak with the chair of the Judiciary Council, Alex Jaber. I'm assuming he had a background on the Judiciary Council before I, this. I think yes. Yeah. He's been a member of the Judiciary Council for a Did while. Did he say anything about what inspired him to run to be chair? Well, I think actually his experience is what has inspired him to run to be chair. I think he feels that he's, he's ready and the position was open and he obviously spoke to the Amherst student body because he won. Yeah, what platform did he run on? What did he? Uh, what are his visions for the Judiciary Council? He spoke a lot about restructuring the complaint process, which I guess is a, a large part of um, what the Judiciary Council does. I think he wants to have he wants to sort of standardize the process of, mm -hmm. of bringing a complaint 
um, and he wants. To, I think he wants to amend even the AS Constitution to to make this more standardized process. Yeah, and what does the Judiciary Council? What sort of complaints does the Judiciary Council deal with? So I know one thing that the Judiciary Council dealt with in the past has, was the sort of controversy over a letter that the AS had sent out regarding the Israel-Palestine issue, and I think they evaluated that complaint. Yeah. That was like, we did a lot of reporting on that. That was yeah. last fall. Um, so there's a lot of materials on that on theamherstudent.com if you want to check that out. Check it out. Liam also got a chance to speak with first-year Jaden Richards about his appointment as vice president of AAS. Jaden told the student that he initially decided to run because he had many ideas for how to make our student government more effective, and he hopes that his friends and classmates have come to trust his judgment and genuine desire to improve the fare of Amherst students. Right now, Jaden is looking forward to holding office hours in Val this week, and he hopes this will become a permanent part of AAS's engagement with the student body. He urges students to voice any complaints and concerns they have, no matter how small. Finally, and I promise we did not force him to say this, Jaden thinks that reading the student is the best way to stay engaged with the democratic process on campus. Finally, sophomore Dania Halleck was appointed as treasurer of AAS. She was the only candidate, but Dania told us that most of the budgetary committee members are first years or seniors, meaning the job kind of just fell into her lap for logistical reasons. Besides this, Dania is extremely excited to take on the role because of the opportunity it affords her to repair the relationship between the budgetary committee and the student body. Dania was adamant about making the funding request process more transparent and made it clear that her and the other members of the budgetary committee are always open to questions and feedback. In terms of tangible policy changes, Dania will be working to readjust funding limits to accommodate for inflation. She's also committed to compensating lower-income student workers on campus to promote more diverse engagement in campus clubs and organizations. To hear more about this last issue, you can read our most recent editorial. Any big takeaways for you, like hearing these interviews and speaking with them? It's great to hear how engaged our executive, our new executive board members are. It seems like they're all very excited to step into the roles and hit the ground running. Again, not to always bring it back to the new bylaw that was passed, but right. like one of the reasons that the Senate moved to pay people starting next cycle is because senators just weren't necessarily engaged because it was basically you write your name down and you're in. So it's nice to have these people um, like leading the AAS who are engaged for Definitely. sure. Thank you, Liam. Of course. Special thanks to the news team, including Kaylin McQuilkin, Tana Delalio, Sonia Shajet-Wides, and Eleanor Walsh. Thank you also to our audio engineer, Sebastian Sun. Once again, I'm Sam, and I'll see you next week on The Student Sums It Up.